The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle. Volume 2, The Constitution. Book 3, The Tuileries. Chapter 2, The Wakeful. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 2, The Wakeful. Sleep who will, cradled in hope and short vision, like Lafayette, who always in the danger done, sees the last danger that will threaten him, Time is not sleeping, nor time's seed-field. That sacred herald's college of a new dynasty, we mean the sixty-and-odd bill-stickers with their leaden badges, are not sleeping. Daily they, with paste-pot and cross-staff, new-clothe the walls of Paris in colours of the rainbow, authoritative heraldic, as we say, or indeed almost magical thaumaturgic, for no placard journal that they paste but will convince some soul or souls of man. The hawkers bawl and the ballad singers, great journalism blows and blusters through all its throats, forth from Paris towards all corners of France, like an Aeolus's cave, keeping alive all manner of fires. Throats or journals there are, as men count, to the number of some hundred and thirty-three, of various calibre, from your Chénier, Gossas, Camille, down to your Marat, down to your incipient Hébert of the Père Duchesne, these blow with fierce weight of argument or quick light banter for the rights of man, Durasoir, Royo, Peltier, Sullo, equally with mixed tactics, inclusive, singular to say, of much profane parody, are blowing for altar and throne. As for Marat, the people's friend, his voice is as that of the bullfrog or bittern by the solitary pools. He, unseen of men, croaks harsh thunder, and that alone continually, of indignation, suspicion, incurable sorrow. The people are sinking towards ruin, near starvation itself. My dear friends, cries he, your indigence is not the fruit of vices nor of idleness. You have a right to life as good as Louis Sixteenth, or the happiest of the century. What man can say he has a right to dine when you have no bread? The people sinking on the one hand, on the other hand nothing but wretched Sieur Motier, treasonous Requetti Mirabeaus, traitors or else shadows and simulacra of quacks to be seen in high places, look where you will. Men that go mincing, grimacing with plausible speech and brushed raiment, hollow within, quacks political, quacks scientific, academical, all with a fellow feeling for each other and kind of quack public spirit. Not great Lavoisier himself or any of the forty can escape this rough tongue, which wants not fanatic sincerity, nor, strangest of all, a certain rough caustic sense. And then the three thousand gaming houses that are in Paris, cesspools for the scoundrelism of the world, sinks of iniquity and debauchery, whereas without good morals liberty is impossible. There, in these dens of Satan, which one knows and perseveringly denounces, do Sieur Motier's mouchards consort and colleague, battening vampire-like on a people next door to starvation. Oh, purple, cries he, oft-times with heart-rending accent. Treason, delusion, vampirism, scoundrelism, from Dan to Beersheba. The soul of Marat is sick with the sight, but what remedy? 
to erect 800 gibbets in convenient rows and proceed to hoisting Rakete on the first of them. Such is the brief recipe of Marat, friend of the people. So blow and bluster the hundred and thirty-three, nor, as would seem, are these sufficient, for there are benighted nooks in France to which newspapers do not reach, and everywhere is such an appetite for news as was never seen in any country. Let an expeditious damp Martin on furlough set out to return home from Paris. He cannot get along, for peasants stopping him on the highway, overwhelming him with questions. The maitre de poste will not send out the horses till you have well-nigh quarrelled with him, but asks always, what news? At Autun, in spite of the rigorous frost, for it is now January 1791, nothing will serve, but you must gather your way-worn limbs and thoughts and speak to the multitudes from a window opening into the marketplace. It is the shortest method. This, good Christian people, is verily what an august assembly seemed to me to be doing. This and no other is the news. Now my weary lips I close, leave me, leave me to repose. The good damp Martin. But on the whole are not nations astonishingly true to their national character, which indeed runs in the blood? Nineteen hundred years ago, Julius Caesar, with his quick, sure eye, took note how the Gauls waylaid men. It is a habit of theirs, says he, to stop travellers, were it even by constraint, and inquire whatsoever each of them may have heard or known about any sort of matter. In their towns the common people beset the passing trader, demanding to hear from what regions he came, what things he got acquainted with there. Excited by which rumours and hearsays they will decide about the weightiest matters, and necessarily repent next moment that they did it on such guidance of uncertain reports, and many a traveller answering with mere fictions to please them and get off. Nineteen hundred years, and good damp Martin, way worn in winter frost, probably with scant light of stars and fish oil, still perorates from the inn window. This people is no longer called Gaulish, and it has wholly become Bracatus, has got breaches, and suffered change enough. Certain fierce German Franken came storming over, and, so to speak, vaulted on the back of it, and always after, in their grim, tenacious way, have ridden it bridled, for German is, by his very name, Gurman, or man that wars and gars. And so the people, as we say, is now called French or Frankish. Nevertheless, does not the old Gaulish and Gaelic Celthood, with its vehemence, effervescent promptitude, and what good and ill it had, still vindicate itself, little adulterated? For the rest, that in such prurient confusion clubism thrives and spreads, need not be said. Already the mother of patriotism, sitting in the Jacobins, shines supreme over all, and has paled the poor lunar light of that monarchic club near to final extinction. She, we say, shines supreme, girt with sunlight, not yet with infernal lighting, reverenced not without fear by municipal authorities, counting her Barnaves, Lameths, Pétions of a National Assembly, most gladly of all her Robespierre. Cordelia's again, your Hébert, Vincent, bibliopolist Momoro, grown audibly that a tyrannous mare and Sieur Motier harrow them with the sharp tribular of law, intent apparently to suppress them by tribulation.
how the Jacobin Mother Society, as hinted formerly, sheds forth Cordelias on this hand, and then Foyans on that. The Cordelias, an elixir or double distillation of Jacobin patriotism. The other, a widespread weak dilution thereof. How she will reabsorb the former into her mother bosom, and stormfully dissipate the latter into nonentity. How she breeds and brings forth three hundred daughter societies, her rearing of them, her correspondence, her endeavourings and continual travail. How, under an old figure, Jacobinism shoots forth organic filaments to the utmost corners of confused, dissolved France, organising it anew. This properly is the grand fact of the time. To passionate constitutionalism, still more to royalism, which see all their own clubs fail and die, clubism will naturally grow to seem the root of all evil. Nevertheless, clubism is not death, but rather new organisation and life out of death, destructive indeed of the remnants of the old, but to the new, important, indispensable. That man can cooperate and hold communion with man, herein lies his miraculous strength. In hut or hamlet, patriotism mourns not now like voice in the desert. It can walk to the nearest town, and there in the daughter society make its ejaculation into an articulate oration, into an action, guided forward by the mother of patriotism herself. All clubs of constitutionalists and such like fail, one after another, as shallow fountains. Jacobinism alone has gone down to the deep subterranean lake of waters, and may, unless filled in, flow there, copious, continual, like an artesian well, till the great deep have drained itself up, and all be flooded and submerged, and Noah's deluge out-deluged. On the other hand, Claude Fauchet, preparing mankind for a golden age now apparently just at hand, has opened his Cercle Social with clerks, corresponding boards, and so forth, in the precincts of the Palais Royal. It is tedium, Fauchet, the same who preached on Franklin's death in that huge Medician rotunda of the Harlow Bleds. He here this winter, by printing press and melodious colloquy, spreads Bruy of himself to the utmost city barriers. Ten thousand persons of respectability attend there and listen to this Procureur General de la Verite, Attorney General of Truth, so has he dubbed himself, to his sage Condorcet or other eloquent coadjutor. Eloquent Attorney General, he blows out from him, better or worse, what crude or ripe thing he holds, not without result to himself, for it leads to a bishopric, though only a constitutional one. Fauchet approves himself a glib-tongued, strong-lunged, whole-hearted human individual. Much flowing matter there is, and really of the better sort, about right, nature, benevolence, progress. Which flowing matter, whether it is pantheistic or is pot-theistic, only the greener mind in these days need read. Busy Brissot was long ago of purpose to establish precisely some such regenerative social circle. Nay, he had tried it in Newman Street, Oxford Street, of the Fog, Babylon, and failed, as some say, surreptitiously pocketing the cash. Fauchet, not Brissot, was fated to be the happy man. Whereat, however, generous Brissot will, with sincere heart, sing a timber-toned nunc domine.
but 10,000 persons of respectability, what a bulk have many things in proportion to their magnitude. This circle social, for which Brissot chants in sincere timber tone such nunc domine, what is it? Unfortunately, wind and shadow. The main reality one finds in it now is perhaps this, that an attorney-general of truth did once take shape of a body as son of Adam on our earth, though but for months or moments, and ten thousand persons of respectability attended, ere yet chaos and knocks had reabsorbed him. 133 Paris journals, regenerative social circle, oratory in mother and daughter societies from the balconies of inns by chimney nook at dinner table, polemical ending many times in duel and ever like a constant growling accompaniment of bass discord, scarcity of work, scarcity of food. The winter is hard and cold, ragged baker's cues like a black-tattered flag of distress wave out ever and anon. It is the third of our hunger years, this new year of a glorious revolution. The rich man, when invited to dinner in such distressed seasons, feels bound in politeness to carry his own bread in his pocket. How the poor dine? And your glorious revolution has done it, cries one, and our glorious revolution is subtility by black traitors worthy of the lamp iron, perverted to do it, cries another. Who will paint the huge whirlpool wherein France all shivered into wild, incoherent whirls? the jarring that went on under every French roof, in every French heart, the diseased things that were spoken, done, the sum total whereof is the French Revolution, tongue of man cannot tell, nor the laws of action that work unseen in the depths of that huge blind incoherence. With amazement, not with measurement, men look on the immeasurable, not knowing its laws, seeing with all different degrees of knowledge what new phases and results of events its laws bring forth. France is as a monstrous galvanic mass, wherein all sorts of far stranger than chemical, galvanic or electric forces and substances are at work, electrifying one another, positive and negative, filling with electricity your laden jars, twenty-five million in number. As the jars get full, there will, from time to time, be, on slight hint, an explosion. End of Book 3, Chapter 2